welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today continues our study in Deuteronomy with chapter 10. At that time, Yahweh said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, and cut two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that Yahweh had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And Yahweh gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as Yahweh commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Beroth, Benayakin, to Mosra. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgadah, and from Gudgadah to Jotbatha, a land with brooks of water. At that time Yahweh set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, to stand before Yahweh, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. Yahweh is his inheritance, as Yahweh your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time forty days and forty nights, and Yahweh listened to me that time also. Yahweh was unwilling to destroy you. And Yahweh said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, and the earth with all that is in it. Yet Yahweh set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons, and now Yahweh your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Moses continues the conversation that he and Yahweh had after the golden calf incident of the Israelites, that he had broken the two tablets of stone from before, and you can ask your kids as a quick little summary question, what was on those stone tablets? What was written on them? These are the Ten Commandments. Moses smashed them. He destroyed them 
and God instructs him to make new ones, as well as an ark of wood, acacia wood to be specific, which is a, a fairly nice wood that was available at the time. Don't hear of as much of it today. This ark, by the way, can be found in Exodus chapter 25, the instructions for how the ark would be made, which it's made by Oholiab and Bezalel, the master craftsmen. So Moses taking responsibility here as he phrases these things. What is the ark? It is the very throne of God that will sit in the midst of them for the years to come. It will sit in the midst of the tabernacle, which dwells in the middle of the camp of Israel. It is God's throne. So Moses makes the ark, cuts out the two tablets, brings them to the Lord, and the Lord writes on them the Ten Commandments. Two tablets. So how many commandments on each one? I think you will often see pictures of three or four on the first, depending on the artist and what they think the first table of the law is. Their numbering system is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, commandment number three, or is it commandment number four? Usually the artist's belief about that will determine how many they put on the first tablet. They put the rest on the second. The two tables of the law, as we like to call them. I don't believe that we have any indication from Scripture exactly how many were written on each of these two tablets, but they're written on these two tablets. That's all it says. Yahweh gives them to him. He comes down the mountain. He puts the tablets in the ark. There they are, as Yahweh commanded me. That would be close to 40 years later. As Moses now speaks to the people right before his death, right before they enter the promised land. And honestly, they're still there hundreds of years later. The last time we see them specifically referenced that I could find was in 1 Kings chapter 8 at the dedication of the temple by King Solomon. But the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple, and inside of it still are these tablets of stone. They were not the only things that the Israelites uh, housed inside of the Ark. So the Ark is a throne, but it's also a box. It's got a mercy seat as its cover, so a seat to sit on. They also housed there a jar of manna to remind them of their wilderness wandering and how the Lord provided. And Aaron's staff, that there was a a competition, really a, a testing of God, to see who the Lord had appointed to be the leader of his people. And God invited each tribe, the leader of each tribe, to bring a staff forward and to leave it in the tabernacle overnight. That when they came back in the morning, the one that had budded, would be the staff of a man that God had chosen. When they came back in the morning, Aaron's staff had not only budded, but also fully flowered and produced almonds overnight. That staff was also placed inside of the ark. Now, the text continues with their journey, and this is just a quick recap of some things. It's much briefer than Numbers chapter 33, but you can see some of these names repeated in that chapter. They're going to leave from Beroth Beneyakin. Beroth is a Hebrew word for wells. Be'er, or beer, as it would look in English, is the word for well, translated in English that way. 
Um, so Beroth is plural. So they're, they're leaving the wells of Benayakin, and they're going to Mosra. Uh, many commentators will suggest that Mosra is one and the same as Mount Hor, which makes sense because that's where Aaron dies, according to Numbers 33. And here we're told that there, there he died. So Mosra, Mount Hor, um, Numbers 33, verses 37 to 39, Aaron dies there at the age of 123 years old. So he lives a good long life. They journey there, a couple more journeys, a couple more trips. They're following the pillar of fire and cloud that the Lord moves in front of them. They follow. When it stops, they set up camp, including the tabernacle. When it picks up and moves again, they pick up their camp, including the tabernacle, and they move along behind it some more. We're also told in verse 8 that now Yahweh has set apart the Levites to be those who would carry the ark and the various other pieces of the tabernacle whenever the camp moved one from one place to another. To move the ark, to stand before Yahweh to minister to him, a reference to all the Old Testament sacrifices that you can find in the book of Leviticus, and to bless in his name. I would point you to number six there, although I don't know that you need to open your Bible for it. Most of you probably hear your pastor speak those words to you every weekend because it is the Aaronic Aaron, Aaronic benediction, blessing. And we close our service with the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give to you his peace. Those words that we speak each week, number six, verses 24 to 26. The priest blesses the people. Yahweh is his inheritance. He has no other. As the people were given land as an allotment, they were to care for that land, and in return, that land provided for them. Yahweh used it to provide for them, right, as it would grow a crop, sustain their livestock, etc., help care for their family. The Levites don't have that. The Lord will provide for them directly from the sacrifices that are brought by the other tribes. That is, they bring an animal, sacrificed, burned on the altar, parts of those animals were given to the Levites and their families for food. Now, this could bring up a family conversation about what is our inheritance. And that's the point of talking about the paradise that comes, the promised land for which we are waiting, that we get to live with Christ forever, and as there will be a new heaven and a new earth, we get to serve with him, caring for it forevermore. And this will be such a wonderful pleasure. It's hard to even describe. So Moses reminds us, as he did in the previous chapter, of his 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain the second time, and that he pleaded for the people, interceded for them, and that the Lord relented. He did not destroy them as he had threatened to do. So he commands Moses at that point to take the people away from Sinai to continue their journey. So you can take verses 6 through 9, as ESV did, putting them in parentheses, as a, basically Moses' own editorial note as he wrote this down. Or you can see it as another one of his tangents, like it was back at verse 22 yesterday in chapter 9. I take it that way. So I told you before in chapter 5 that Moses starts speaking, and he doesn't stop until chapter 27. You, if you believe that the, the verses 6 to 9 here are not spoken to the Israelites at the time, 
then verse 10 starts up a new section of speech which continues all the way to chapter 27. This is the only insert anywhere along the way. But again, why not? He's reminding them of everything else. Why not remind them of some of their trips? And why not remind them of the death of Aaron? It seems fitting enough. All right, the last paragraph. This is a hard one. What does Yahweh your God require of you? So making it sound simple, right? What does God ask? Is it not this? Fear Yahweh, walk in his ways, love him, serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, keep his commandments. That's not much. I say that sarcastically. That is a, that's an impossible task, as we know as sinners. Fear Yahweh is good, and that's a real fear. He is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He could destroy us. But we also know in that same fear of him that as we come to the Lord, we have his forgiveness. So we fear, and then we get to hear, do not be afraid. It's a both hand. They go together. We trust the Lord. Walk in his ways. This goes hand in hand with keeping his commandments. Follow him, trust in him, love him, serve him. So don't chase after idols, don't serve the other gods, don't worship the other gods, follow God alone. Then we get some words praising the Lord. To Yahweh your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Heaven and heaven of heavens distinguishing maybe from each other, pointing just to the idea of everything up. So in the ancient world's mind, uh, there were three levels of heaven. There was the sky, as we would think of it. The next being space, as we would think of that. And then the third being what we normally would call heaven, the place where we think God dwells. That was just all heaven to them. So this extra phrasing with the word heaven showing up three times, showing us that all-encompassing of that idea of everything above. And then earth, everything beneath It all belongs to God. It's all his. And yet, even though this is true, Yahweh chose you. You, above all peoples. He chose your fathers. He chose you. Again, as we saw in chapter 9, that's not your doing. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. This is true also of us. But it is a gift. He has chosen us. And we rejoice. And so Moses instructs them to circumcise their heart. Circumcision is literally cutting off the tip of the skin of the male penis. But here, it's not a physical circumcision that he gets at. It's a spiritual circumcision. To be circumcised was to enter the covenant of God. It was to show that you would follow and trust in him. Here, this spiritual circumcision is basically to to put to death the old Adam, the old sinful nature, and to follow the Lord. A couple of New Testament references to circumcision could be helpful here. Um, In him, Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, a circumcision not made with hands, just like the circumcision of the heart would be here, not made by hands. The other one I think is useful, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. Paul casts off physical circumcision as anything for the church and points out that you're not a Jew outwardly. That is, you don't just say, well, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm born from that family tree. That's of no value, as he'll point out multiple times in Romans. What is of value is that you are a child of the promise of Abraham, the promise God made to Abraham that he would save him and his people. And so it is with circumcision. It's not an outward thing. It's inward. Cut off that old dead self. Christ has made you a new creation. So circumcise the heart. Be no longer stubborn. You are God's people. And the praise of God continues. God of gods, Lord of lords. So the world has multiple gods that they believe in. But they aren't real. So it's easy for God to be God of gods and to reign over them all. The next one's a little harder. There are many lords in this world. And that's true even to this day. Men who reign. Just like the phrase king of kings would be then. And yet God is Lord over over all of them. That's not hard for God. I say it's, it's harder because, at least in the God of God's comparison, the other gods aren't real. The other lords are. But he's still Lord of lords. There are many of them. He rules them all. He's great. A reference to his ability to do all things, mighty, uh, his strength, and awesome. Awesome means worthy of fear. God is worthy of our fear because he is great and because he is mighty. He's not partial, so he doesn't show favoritism, but instead cares for all of his creation. He takes no bribe, so you cannot, you can't pay him off to take your side. He's just instead. And he executes that justice. He brings justice to the fatherless, the widow, those who are in need, those whom the community often neglects. He loves the sojourner, that is the traveler who does not call this place their home. He cares for their needs. And so they are taught, verse 19, to also care for the sojourners and reminded that they were once sojourners in the land of Egypt. That kind of language gets used numerous times in the Old Testament as they are instructed to love others. Fear Yahweh your God. Serve him, hold fast to him. We've seen all that already in the chapter. By his name you shall swear. That's something Jesus will actually tell us not to do come the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5. But for Israel, as their divine king, who sits on the throne of the kingdom in which they are entering, a bit of a different picture. He is your praise. He is your God. 
who has done these great and terrifying things your eyes have seen. So a reference to the plagues, to the Red Sea, to the crushing of the kings, Sihon and Og. And here's a great thing. Went down to Egypt 70 persons. Yahweh has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. That's a promise first given to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 5. Look toward the heaven, number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. God has kept his promise. As they left Egypt, so entered it 70 persons, they left it with 603,550 fighting men, perhaps numbering in the couple millions, two, three million range of a total population. The Lord is good. The Lord cares for his people. And this is true even to this day. He cares for us as he delivers us from sin, death, and the devil, as he washes away our sin and the blood of the Lamb, taking our guilt and our burden, and instead giving us his yoke, which is light.